On this episode of DIY Extend, we discuss the musings that have been going on in the community about audacity. This episode of DLN Extend is brought to you by DigitalOcean and Bitwarden. Welcome to episode 65 of DLN Extend. DLN Extend is a community-powered podcast. We take conversations from the DLN community from places like the DLN Discourse Forums, Telegram Groups, Discord Servers, and more. We also take topics from other shows around the network and give our takes. What is going on, everybody? And with me are my fantastic co-hosts, who I am so happy to be back around after uh, not being able to be around last week, Nate and wendy what's going on guys not much stuff (laughs) nate what's going on in your world bud well i was just listening to ask noah from yesterday this morning when i was in my linuxy mode i finally have a simple solution for migrating my matrix account from my matrix.org to my destination linux.network and it was such a simple solution that i feel stupid and ashamed to let everybody know i'm just going to invite myself to the chats to the other matrix account so then problem solved so i can keep both accounts i can use whichever and it just works it's like, yadoy, why don't you figure that out on your own? But apparently I didn't. So that's what I'm going to be working on today. And little bits of time I have between doing the most unfortunate tasks that I have to do around the house. Well, I'm glad you found a solution to it. And sometimes the stuff, the solutions that are right in front of your face are the hardest ones to see. I can speak from experience. Yeah, definitely in that same boat. Uh, I know, Nate, you've been looking for a solution to merge all that down a little bit. So good to see you finally found a solution to your whimsical problems, to use your wording. Right. I'll get that done today. So time, you know, maybe a little bits at a time. And then I don't have to worry about always checking my other matrix account. Problem solved. I feel a little dumb because I could have figured that out on my own, but apparently I'm a little bit slow on the uptake, I guess. So Wendy, I see you got some things you remind us about. Yes, it is event reminders again. And it came to my attention just before we started recording the show. I probably said July a little bit on the show last week. It is not July which things have actually changed a little bit since I told you the dates last week. The once again live deal and extend will be on August 18th and the lug and game fest for the entire network will be on August 22nd. So make sure you're checking out the links in the description to be able to get accurate times for all of this stuff that's going on. And in addition, in our last creators meeting, there is some talk that we will have something fun planned for September 2. So be listening for that. I'm super excited. That's all I've got going on right now. My sunburn's healed. Oh, good. Kids are in swimming lessons. We're busy that way. But I'm just wanting to remind you of all of the events we have coming up in August. So Matt, tell me you've got something more exciting than what I've got. (laughs) I've been distro hopping. Ironically enough, the thing you guys talked about last week was excitement around distros and stuff. I excitedly broke my system. So (laughs) (laughs) more specifically, my Arch system broke and I don't know what it was. I think it was the NVIDIA just went kaput. Long story short, I just didn't want to deal with it again. I ended up jumping from a KDE Arch base distro because I use Salient generically. I jumped over to Ubuntu Unity, the remix. That's been an interesting experience. Good thing my workflow in Plasma is basically the same as it was in Unity because there's really not much in a change in that particular dynamic. But I've learned one thing. I don't care for GTK-based apps. 
apps. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think it's a little hit and miss on GTK apps. It depends on how well they automatically integrate into Plasma. Now, I agree with you. What's amusing, some GTK apps, the decoration thing totally breaks, mm-hmm. even when it tries the integration. And sometimes it works fabulously well. I don't know what the breakdown is, but I do agree with you and I disagree with you at the same time. Well, what I mean by that <laughs> is the general design ethos of GTK-based apps. I prefer the cute based kind of way things look as far as like the actual interaction with the app as opposed to the way GTK stuff does. My only exception to that is probably when it comes to a music player, which I still prefer Lollipop. You ever sing Lollipop, Lollipop when you start it up? Because I would have that temptation every time. You wouldn't have the temptation. You'd probably just do it. (laughs) Well, yes, but like... But let's say I'm starting in a crowded room, I'm going to then have to like keep from being myself. You would still do it. I have no problem embarrassing myself, actually. That's, you know, you're right. Besides having to go back to GTK-based apps, I've learned that Plasma tries to make it play nice and GTK does not try to make QT-based apps play nice as far as the integration and stuff. The proverbial slap across one side of the face and the proverbial slap across the other side of the face when you bounce back and forth between the apps is a little annoying. But other than that, the workflow has basically been the same. A lot of snaps. So some people like might take issue with that. It solves a lot of my problems. And at the end of the day, that's really what these are. They're tools to me. So it's been fun though. Which snaps I'm curious are you using and have you had any problems with snaps? I haven't had any problems with snaps on because uh, I'm using the 2004 base. Okay. When I use Ubuntu, it's always LTS. Is that particular machine doesn't need constant updates to the drivers. I do have the NVIDIA PPA installed, but that's typical because I would prefer to at least have more up-to-date drivers than 390 on 2004, I think. They're at like 470-something. So (laughs) I would prefer a little newer on the driver set. OBS mostly because OBS has a bunch of plugins in the snap that generic OBS, regardless of system stuff, doesn't have. Then there's a few other kind of weird esoteric ones that I use. Nothing major, but just stuff I enjoy using, stuff trying out. This episode of Deal and Extend is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean recently announced their new managed MongoDB service, which is a fully managed database as a service. With MongoDB, you can focus more on building scalable, high-performance apps and less on maintaining the database. Simply offload your MongoDB administration to DigitalOcean and let them handle the provisioning, managing, scaling, updates, backups, and security for your clusters. DigitalOcean built this service in partnership with MongoDB Inc. And together, they have ensured that you will get access to all the latest releases of MongoDB document database as they become available. As a listener of DLNX10 podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free. Actually, better than free because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 credit when you go to do.co slash DLN dash Mongo. Again, go to do.co slash DLN dash M-O-N-G-O and get started with your $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's new Manage MongoDB. We want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of DLN Extend. Speaking of trying out things, Muse Group seems to be trying out a few things and not succeeding very well at it. (laughs) Well, maybe they're trying to do good public relations and are just tripping over their feet at every step. There is nothing about this story that screams good public relations at all. And I know when we first brought up this topic, we're like, let's just wait and see what happens, see what they do. Mm -hmm. And so far, I'm not really impressed. For those that don't know... 
Muse Group, they own like the trademarks and a lot of the other stuff related to it, the branding and that kind of stuff. They own that. Has been tripping over their own feet ever since they, I guess you could say, acquired the project. A lot of it's been a PR disaster. You first had the telemetry stuff. For most part, I'm okay with the telemetry. You know, you can bicker about the opt-in, opt-out stuff. That's more of a preference thing in my take. Then you had the contributors license agreements, the CLAs that people are complaining about. Now, they have a privacy policy that says if you're 13, you can't use their app. Yes. I think that was a faux pas. I think they made a mistake on that. I really do. I don't think they did. That's the problem. Really? I want to be clear. We are taking Muse Group to task, like the company that oversees these projects, not the actual contributors to the project. The ones that are handling the PR, you are doing horrible at it. (laughs) (laughs) I want to be clear. We get flack sometimes for making it seem like we're beating up a project. I want people to understand we're beating up the people who are making these announcements and not doing a very good job with it or not communicating clearly. And all of that is targeted at Muse Group specifically. I don't think it's an unintentional thing because Muse Score, which is their other application, which is open source, literally one of the taglines is something about having no limits. Free and open source and not limited. If you read their privacy policy, this is their own policy. The service we provide through the website and the app is not intended for individuals below the age of 13. If you are under 13 years old, please do not use the service. You may only use Muse Score if you are over the age at which... You can provide consent to data processing under the law of your country or if verifiable parallel consent for your use of MuseScore has been provided to us. That's for MuseScore. That is literally a copy-paste insert audacity instead of MuseScore. That to me just says they're still gathering data because they do that for websites. And there's a lot of open source projects out there Mm -hmm. that have this under the age of 13 stuff for compliance with data collection and all of that when it relates to minors, specifically kids under the age of 13. If you have that directly embedded in the application that says we are still collecting data in a way that needs to comply with, what is the name of that again? COPA and the, was it GDPR or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And part of the issue in general is just how vague everything is every time they come out with stuff. It's, hey, this is the change we're making. They throw it out there and they leave this wording so open and so vague that interpretations happen and not always for the better. And now they've done it so many times that it is really hard to look at Muse Group and say, okay, I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt because by now you should be aware of what this wording looks like as it's put forth to the community and you should be making those clarifications on the back end before it ever reaches the public ever reaches the public. They probably need to do it more in the open the process and actually maybe discuss it as opposed to just throw it out there. Like they throw it over the wall and it's not really well thought out, obviously. Or maybe they have some bad lawyers or something that's advising really awfully. It seems to be the constant theme here. Because if you look at the GitHub commits and everything, there are people discussing it with them saying, hey, this is offline content. This shouldn't matter because it's an offline application. It's not an online application. Right. For a lot of people, the sticking point, at least in a lot of those threads, is the limitation of if you're 13 or under, you can't use this app. And I wonder if that's tied into a lot of the telemetry backend nonsense. I'm not saying I see where they're coming from, but that's the only place where this kind of wording 
based on other projects that I've looked at. The Gnome Foundation has a similar limitation, but it's very specific. The sites around the Gnome Foundation, not the software. KDE doesn't have one of these policies. Arch and OpenSUSE don't have any of that, but Fedora and Mandraro, for their forums and stuff, have the same 13-year-old limitation. The only thing I can logically conclude to is that it's a limitation based on the telemetry. If it's going to cause that much of a problem that you need to put this in and limit who this application is available for in an offline capacity, potentially relook at the telemetry as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. And as we've talked about before, I don't mind having certain data sent to make an application better. I really want Audacity to grow and be better. Heck, it's, it's something that I'm in every single week anymore. That's why this whole story is even more frustrating to me. It even goes back to a previous topic we've had of, you know, what happens if your favorite application goes closed? While it hasn't gone closed and they promise that it never will, one of my biggest issues with this is, okay, you're making promises that this is what this really vague thing means and it's never going to go closed and you're never going to gather this kind of data, but you're leaving all of this open and who says that you will be the one who controls Audacity forever. I'm not counting on you being nice now and that the next person who handles it will also have your same feelings. Nope, I'm not that trusting. I totally get that. It's this weird thing because Muse Group came into this, okay, they have at least a track record somewhat with Muse Score as a open source project and application and you know business around it and all the other stuff. How do you mishandle this that badly? Right. That to me is mind boggling. I've criticized projects like Gnome in the past for their lack of communication about things that they are going to change and they just kind of force it upon users. That's just what it is. That's the direction we're going, like you're a kind of deal. They've gotten a lot better about that. This reminds me kind of of that, but the vagueness, I'm not going to lie, reminds me of a lot of the promises companies like Purism make. And then not delivering on them. Yeah. And I don't want to be that pessimistic about a project that so many of us, especially those of us in any content creation sphere, especially when it comes to Linux, relies on. There's tons of options, but none of them are as feature rich as, say, something like Audacity. We can use some of the audio stuff for in Caden Live, but it's not the same. It's not the same granular control. I love Ocean Audio, but a lot of people are going to have a problem that's proprietary. It's proprietary, and then I've played with it just a little bit, and one of my biggest issues with it is multi-track editing. You need mm -hmm. to have one track. I don't like to edit any show as one track. I like to edit it as individual tracks for each person because it gives me so much more control of cleaning up background noise and all of that other stuff. Whereas if mm -hmm. every person is on one track, you lose so much fine tuning of that audio. Yeah. And that's the point. Like then you have things like K-Wave, which can do multi-track, but it doesn't have a lot of plugins and that kind of stuff. I know we're talking a lot about specifically the privacy policy. That's just mostly because that's the new hubbub around <laughs> Muse Group's issues of handling Audacity. You can look at the CLA stuff all you want. 
I'm kind of indifferent on the contributor license agreement stuff. And I still had issues with there, mostly because of the vagueness. Like I said, every step of the way, they've been way too vague on so many different things. And then you compile this vague telemetry, this vague CLA, this vague privacy policy, and you put those together. And I'm like, okay, so you're making all these promises to me, but there's nothing stopping you from going back on that promise because look at how vague all of this is. And I know I've said vague a lot, but... Welcome to <laughs> what Muse Group has been doing. They've been as vague as possible. They've been about as transparent on their wording as a running into a brick wall. Yes, exactly. It's one of those like cartoons where you paint the tunnel and one character can run through it. That's Muse Group. And then everybody tries to run through it and they just run into a brick wall. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're not being transparent. Transparent would be, hey, we're looking to do this. They talked about the, I believe it was the VSTs, the reason why they were looking at different licensing, potentially for the CLA stuff. I've only surface level looked at that topic. Just from looking at it, it's because of a certain licensing. There's certain elements of GPL2 that's not compatible with GPL3, et cetera, et cetera. So, and I'm not 100% sure of the licensing on um, VST, but I think it's GPL3. It just makes it kind of weird. I can, at least from a logical point of view, get that. I don't agree with it, but I'm saying I can get it if that's the case. But I'm taking your word at it. And unfortunately, Muse Group, gonna hate to bring it to you. Your word don't mean a whole lot right now because any goodwill that you might have had initially, you kind of don't have anymore. Yeah, they're definitely losing it. And when I've been reading comments around the interwebs, There's two pretty distinct sides to this. Either you say, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Muse Group is fine. Audacity is just fine with the changes that they're making. And then there is very much the opposite side saying, look at all the stuff that you've done. How do you expect the community to trust you right now? I think part of the problem with them, they kind of put in some ways the cart before the horse on some things. They probably should have essentially been committed or good on some other promises before they started changing things like, you know, adding the CLA and the privacy policy and telemetry and so forth. I'm not opposed to telemetry entirely as long as there's an opt out, as long as it's clear. I really feel like there's just somebody who's just not well connected. And both of you are quite skeptical of of what Muse is doing. I'm still going to kind of hang back and say, you know what, I'm going to just keep watching you and see what you do. I don't want to uh, necessarily sink that ship yet. If they really ultimately just go in a totally wackadoodle direction, then it's an open source project, so it can just be forked. And again, we already know there's a fork out there, sort of like a holding place fork. There's another fork on top of that that's actually been around for a few years called... Dark Audacity. Yeah, Dark Audacity. They only have a Windows installer for it, but you can compile it from their GitHub page. I guess I'm not terribly concerned yet. What's different about Dark Audacity? Not, I mean, it's just a dark theme. Dark theme and some visual differences with regular Audacity. Yeah, I don't have Windows. I understand <laughs> the skepticism. And probably it has to do with a lot of skepticism that's going on by a lot of organizations right now anyway. So I think it's just people are hypersensitive to everything. Again, I could be totally wrong. I could be the whack doodle guy here in this conversation. I just want to give them a little bit of a chance yet to like, hey, you still have a chance to make it right. So let's wait and see. And if they make it right, great. You know, if they actually listen to community and Well, I'm not saying that I've wrote them off because I haven't wrote them off. The problem is they're starting to make a deficit with my trust. And the more deficit you make, the harder it is to come back from that. Well, that's a good point. It's like when you do somebody wrong, it takes like four to five good things to make up for that one bad thing. That's probably Matt rules. I know that's (laughs) Nate rules because Nate, he forgets. Matt, I understand where you're coming from on that and the whole deficit thing. Not that I'm the one to uh, give the best advice on such things, but I'm very quick to forgive when something ticks me off, I guess, is really 
That's my position. I think it takes a little more pounding in the face before I'm like, you know what? I'm kind of done with you. That's basically where I'm at. And it kind of depends on what the offense is and how many times the offense happens. To me, we're hitting the spot where we're on the third offense. While it hasn't been a massive punch in the face, you keep sticking your leg out to trip me and I'm getting pretty irritated. (laughs) Okay, I get it. I get it. Yeah. I'm going to take a larger breath when I walk around you at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Like Wendy's saying, though, it's a deficit thing when it comes to that. And I get where you're coming from, Dave. Like, I don't want to write them off, but this is solid criticism when their handling of it has been horrid. We're doing this. Uh, hey, open source kind of a thing. Nice your source code's open, but uh, putting weird limitations on it and all the other stuff. It's weird. And the fact that they don't ever clarify this until enough community outrage happens. Mm-hmm. You can only start so many responses back to the community with, we believe concerns are due larger to unclear phrasing. No crap. Figure it out first. <laughs> Yes. You know, I agree. That is kind of a tired phrasing we're seeing for sure. And I think it also lacks some genuineness too. I got it. You're an organization, you're a company, you know, whatever you are, you're some sort of collection of individuals that want to monetize this in some fashion, but you're talking to open source people. Speak their language. Don't speak corporate ease. That's probably another point that could be taken there. And the part that makes that so frustrating is they already have an open source project. So I don't understand. It's not like they're just now coming into the open source community. They have been part of the open source community. So where is this not understanding how some of that stuff will come across? That's the thing that's, I think, the most shocking to me is the fact that this group, supposedly, you know, this new LLC or corporation, whatever the term for the company that owns it has had a history of open source software development and community interaction and all this other stuff. And how do you fumble it this badly? That's where like, for me, it's just like the most disheartening part about it. Your horrible handling of this. Really what it's been mostly about is just the community is kind of annoyed that you guys have done everything that anybody who's been involved even tangentially with an open source knows not to poke at or touch. Right. Especially since there's a lot of gray beards and such that are involved in this project. People have been around the open source for a long time. Audacity's been around since 2000, if I remember correctly. So uh, yeah, 99. That's right, because I made the joke that Audacity was legal to drink now. <laughs> Muse group that owns Muse score. The app's been around since 2011. You have a decaded open source. How do you mismanage a project this badly? I think that's where my frustration with these guys are is like, I can't summon up enough. They just constantly keep breaking the trust more and more and more. And like Wendy said, that deficit is it's getting to a breaking point with a lot of the community, unfortunately. Yeah, I just hope that they can look at what's going on and maybe check their steps, correct their azimuth and go in the right direction here. I like their portfolio of applications. Not that I'm using any of the other ones, but I like everything that it centers around. Ultimate Guitar, Staff Pad, you know, for editing and music notation application, Muse Score. I don't know about this Muse class. They're positioning themselves to be kind of like a music creators, platform, conglomerate, whatever. And I want to see this grow and flourish into something even better than what Audacity has been. I think that's my hope. And I kind of feel like maybe that that's a lot of people's hope, but they're kind of letting them down a little bit in their missteps. I'm just really hoping they can fix this, I guess. I think there are some things that Audacity could have updated to make the UI just a little bit cleaner. So it's easier to find and do some of the things that you do maybe make a favorite section because there are about four or five main modules and effects that I use. It would be so awesome if I could throw those in a favorites and not have to look at everything every single time and scroll through them when 
I only need just a few for what I'm doing. Right. Yeah, I agree. So I see places where it can change and get better and be more functional. But at the same time, I'm starting to wonder if maybe a fork isn't the best way to get those changes made. And a fork can be one of those things that it diverges for a little bit and then pushes back in to the main line. So it's not like a fork necessarily is the death of, it's a way of hedging your bets of sorts, protecting your assets, exercising your free speech, as it were. My only concern is how many people that are actually going to take off a full-fledged fork this particular app. And this isn't ragging on anybody. I'm not saying people can't do it or they don't have the knowledge, but how many people actually have the technical knowledge around specifically when it comes to audio and the programming aspect around it. That's very niche and very specialized programming. And I'm not talking just the languages. I'm talking about the actual structure. So I hate the term technical debt, like a fork going to take technical debt because it's someone else's project originally. So sometimes almost a clean break is the best way. I'm not a fan of the fork idea, but like at the same time, if these guys keep shooting themselves in the foot with the community, there might not be much option. Yeah, and I know that there was some conversation in the back end between some of the creators about this topic itself. And there was one person specifically saying that forks are really, really hard to do just because it is somebody else's code. So you have to almost have a knowledge base of the code beforehand and there are definitely a lot of complications with creating a fork the problem i see with starting from scratch is then you are literally starting from the base level and you're losing all of the stuff that audacity has built up the features that it's built up over the last 21 years so it's kind of stuck between this rock and a hard place of what to do to still end up having the same quality without dealing with all of the vagueness from the stuff that has nothing to do with the actual workings of the application. Yeah, definitely. It's a complicated time to be an Audacity user. Let's just put it that way. And for all of us who do audio editing for the network, it's really a strange time to be an audio editor right now, especially on Linux. There's really no great alternatives right now. There's alternatives, but they're not, again, feature-rich. So... Unfortunately, it's going to be a lot of wait and see and really what happens. And we can voice our opinion and kind of say, hey, you're doing this wrong. Please stop. Which Muse Group, please, you're doing this wrong. Stop. (laughs) Communicate. Transparency. Be as transparent as a ghost so that people can actually start feeling like they can trust you again. And don't keep dropping, oh, new policies and new changes and new telemetry. Because even when it came to the telemetry thing, People, at the end of the day, the biggest thing people really cared about was more of who the analytics were going from. Yeah. Cared was the indexing Google. That was really the biggest portion of that. You can get into the smaller niggles about opt-in, opt-out, all that other stuff. But really, it was the service providers. CLA, some people care, some don't. Privacy policy, you're limiting it to 13-year-olds or higher. What? Well, and that wasn't the only issue. That one was definitely a glaring issue when it came to individuals under the age of 13, not supposedly using it. Another one was the jurisdiction requirements and how incredibly vague those are and the compliance with law enforcement. Some of that stuff is like, wait, Mm -hmm. wait a minute. You definitely need to narrow that stuff down. That is obviously a very valid privacy concern. And then when you mix that in with the telemetry stuff, especially from a privacy focus, that's where it gets really concerning for a lot of people. Totally get that. That is totally a valid criticism and one that Muse Group needs to address. 
because they need a clear, concise, this is what we do, we don't do. And they haven't really given that, honestly. I do want to make sure it's said that on the clarification of their privacy policy, it does say, I have a bullet, offline use. The privacy policy does not apply to offline use of the application. So they do have that in there. Yes, but it is automatically checking for updates. So is it always offline use or is it not offline use? This is some of the things that because they've already been so vague, I'm not taking your, it doesn't count for offline use, You've already told me that you're checking for updates every time that I open the application. So does that mean it is now online at that time? That's a good point. But I would assume, again, this is assuming, and you know what assuming does, that offline use would be using the application in an isolated form. So if, you know, does it check for updates if it's running in a distribution like a... And OpenSUSE or Ubuntu, is it checking for updates from Audacity or is it checking for updates from the repository? That would be my next question then. If it's from the distribution repository, then I would say that it is under the policy then over the distribution says because that's handling the updates. So Rapid Photo Downloader will check for updates when I open it and it is not checking my repository. It's checking based on the latest release from rapid photo downloader. So that would be different. Mm-hmm. Now, if it's in a flat pack, it would check the flat pack repository and whatever. Is it considered online use though? Because you're not are using the online services. Well, that's where the question comes in. Because if you click the big old download button, technically you'd be using their online services. Right. So this is where the catch 22 becomes. I want to like what potentially could be there from a company like Muse Group who is looking at putting UX and UI elements into Audacity that, not going to lie, it sorely needs. It's functional beyond belief, but it is not the prettiest application. When are you going to test to this just by staring at yes. it as much as you do? <laughs> we have to look at what they're doing, and they're not instilling the most faith. And that's the problem. They need to be better. At least me, anyway, saying, Muse Group, be better. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It makes me wonder, have they poisoned the Audacity waterhole too much or not? I don't know. I'd like to think not. I don't think they have just yet. I think if they have another faux pas like this, there's going to be that, you know, open office, LibreOffice kind of hard disconnect eventually. Or own cloud, next cloud. Yeah. There comes a point where it just, a bunch of developers will just say, okay, we're done. And if that's the case, my sympathies, but just like those projects, the inner workings and licensing and politics got to them and that could potentially happen to Audacity, which is too bad. I like seeing an open source project have its resources come together, not be blown apart. This episode of DLN Extend is brought to you by Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the passive manager we use and trust. It's the easiest, safest way for individuals, teams, businesses, and organizations to store their passwords and other vital sensitive information. Bitwarden lets you choose the authentication to access your password manager, such as PIN, master password, and adding phrases or fingerprint security, all to keep your passwords safe. Go to bitwarden.com DLN to get started for free. Bitwarden is a password manager that I use and trust because Bitwarden is 100% open source. It has extensive security audits. It gives you the ability to self-host if you so choose. So go to bitwarden.com DLN to get started for free. It's only $10 for a premium account, which gives you one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, Duo, Vault Health Reports, and more. Make the smart move like many from the community have and go to bitwarden.com DLN to get started for free. If you're like me, you'll want to show your appreciation by signing up for the Premium Edition, especially since the Premium Edition starts at only $10 annually. Bitwarden has saved me from getting into a serious jam numerous times. Now, you wouldn't be able to pry it from my cold, dead device. Thanks to Bitwarden for sponsoring this episode of DLN Extend. 
we're going to be looking at something that is being done right by making announcements and being clear with the community which the last project isn't doing. Wendy, what project are we talking about? Dark Table got another update, and there are some really cool things in this update. One of them is the favorites panel is almost coming back. They've made a lot of changes to the GUI lately, and in some of the updates they did, they got rid of the favorites, which was a real bummer for me. So now they're removing the quote-unquote basic adjustments panel, and they're adding this one called the quick access panel. This is essentially like your favorites because the users can add controls from any module for quick access, as they say, for increased productivity and enhanced ergonomics. I am so glad this is coming back. I was really disappointed in the fact that my favorites went away. Just like the last application we talked about, Audacity, there are a certain set of modules that I use in my workflow. I don't need to see everything every time. There were some modules that I'll reference every now and again, depending on the image. But typically in my workflow, I'm working within a certain set. So I just want to see them. I want to work with them. I don't want to have to jump back and forth between the different panels, especially with some of the renaming stuff. It still throws me off because I worked with some of the names of the other one for so long that I'll go back and forth between them. Oh my gosh, where did that go? Where did that go? Oh yeah, that's right. The name is whatever. So having this quick access panel back, I am super, super excited for. They did a ton of really cool stuff on the back end with color science, the Filmetric RGB, really cool stuff with color balance. And when it comes to being able to saturate or desaturate, they've made it so that as you are changing the colorfulness of something, you're not changing the luminosity of it. So one of the problems was when you were trying to desaturate, a lot of the times it was making it brighter. So you weren't getting a grayscale that was accurate to the luminosity of that color. You can choose whether you're changing the color in the chroma setting or whether you're able to play with that luminosity a bit too. They've done some major changes there, including being able to globally separate shadows, midtones, and highlights using the luminosity mask. That's one of the things I've been raving about for Darktable for a long time. I love the different masks and layers that you can put on for specific adjustments, and they're just making that even better. However, the addition that I'm most excited about is they have added the color calibration checker support. I don't know if you've seen this. I've had one. If we were on video right now, I'd get it out and show it to you. But it's basically this hunk of plastic. You open it up and inside are all of these different colors, different shades of gray to black and a variety of greens and so on and so forth. And you use this checker in order to make sure that your white balance is accurate, that your greens are showing up the way they're supposed to be. And this support makes it that much easier for you to make sure your color is accurate, especially if you're doing events or other things where the lighting might be changing just a little bit. So if you've got your color checker that's been done for, hey, this is where the wedding party is being photographed. You do your first shot there with the color checker. Then you go around to take all of these pictures. Now you can pull that information in with the color checker support and it makes editing and getting those pictures out to your clients so much faster. I'm super, super excited for the color calibration checker support. 
Not that I do weddings, but... <laughs> if you did weddings... So I've never actually utilized Darktable. I have it installed. I've opened it up several times. It's a very nice looking application, but there's so many knobs. I probably need to do like a crash course training on how to actually adequately use everything. But I do love to hear your excitement on Darktable. I know people who are photographers. Almost seems like using Linux is your best option as a photographer for doing these things. I mean, just based on your excitement of uh, things like Darktable and so forth, would that be an accurate statement? I think that Darktable is one of the best raw editing programs out there. The biggest downside to it is when it comes to blending different images together. So that's where Adobe has a step up over, I'd say, Linux is you are able to do some really cool compositions and automatic removing of backgrounds and that kind of stuff that you're not necessarily seeing in GIMP. So for some people, depending on the type of workflow they're doing or the type of image they're trying to create, they may still struggle with some of the tools that we have in the open source side of things. Whereas Adobe over time has built in and continues to increase these really neat tools that make workflow really fast. It means that you can bring in these very different elements from different pictures or different sources and put them together to have a gorgeous out of this world image. I know this is going to sound like a really weird question, Wendy. How many styles do you usually use on a picture when it comes to Darktable? Styles, I really don't use any of those. And in styles, what that typically is, it's a set of corrections that have already been done so you can apply a style. It's like applying a preset in Adobe. And I don't typically do that. If I have a section of images, a collection of images that all need the same adjustment, I will usually like copy those and paste them onto other images. But say you were that event photographer or a wedding photographer, then you can build a certain look out with modules that are turned on, save that as a style, and then it'll help give you consistency across your images because you have this one preset that you've built. And I know that's one reason why a lot of people enjoy using Photoshop and that kind of thing because you can buy all of these presets all over the place that it's a one-click edit for your images for the most part. There are people in this world that that's all they do is do the one-click preset and oh, I'm done, I've edited. That's not the way things work for me. Especially when I was doing a whole bunch of food stuff. That was very complicated when it came to editing most of the time. So style-wise, I don't use them, but it is definitely a feature that depending on the type of photography you're doing could be a very useful tool. And there are some preset styles available for download on Darktable's website. I was just curious because one of the features was you can now remove multiple styles at once. So I was just curious about that. And they apparently improved support for importing, exporting presets on mass. I was curious, especially for someone who would have a ton of photos, that would probably be a lifesaver of a, of thing. a feature. If, yeah, definitely trim down your workflow. That's cool. I'm always glad to see professional apps like Darktable because let's be real, you can do a lot of professional stuff with Darktable. I mean, we've seen all your businesses done through Darktable or not. So it's always fun to see what can be accomplished with that. Yeah, and even fun stuff. So I just recently shared a couple images from the last hardware addicts on the discourse farm. I was a few days late getting those up. So there is a macro picture of a cat face spider and a macro image of a dandelion flower. Those are edited in Darktable. They even have the Darktable stamp across them with the settings for the shots. 
Nate, tell us why moving sucks. Yes, Nate. Why does moving suck? It is a very unfortunate process. My big hang up right now, I'm still packing up my house. I find that I think things are growing as I'm packing things up. But in a nutshell, my current struggle right now is internet service provider. I'm not going to say what the name of the company is because I don't want to give them any more talk, but I'm very frustrated with getting just straight answers from this particular internet service provider. Their phone tree is the worst. I had to ask for representative numerous times or hit zero, basically until I frustrated the system and I got a representative. Once I got one, they hung up on me. And so I had to go through the process again. And basically, my dislike for this company has just grown. And I dislike the company just as much now, if not more, or it's maybe it's kind of solidified my dislike for it, which means there needs to be more competition in internet service providers in rural areas. I still have to look into the, was it Starlink, Skylink? What's it called that you're using, Wendy, or got on the waiting list for? But I think I need to look into that as well. At least as a backup or of something. A little frustrated with the moving process in that regard, but uh, we'll get it sorted out. I guess we'll find out if I actually get an answer from the company. I'm not going to hold my breath, but there we go. That's what I'm struggling with. Let that sail off into the ether. Yeah, I don't envy you with that part and finding internet service providers that work good and most of them that are (laughs) difficult to work with. I know ours tries to be really good, but once they've heard, especially the local representatives, once they've heard the same problem, oh, I don't have internet, and then they start running through the rundown list of, you know, here's the general things, how to fix it anymore. Thankfully, they listen, start out with a conversation of, I have removed the internet from my router. I'm plugged directly into my desktop. I have run a speed test using the CLI tool, and this is what my ping and whatever is. We can start there instead of all of that other stuff. Right. So Matt, you being the network enabler, pusher, and so forth, what are you going to push our way today? I'm going to push your way towards something that will make you feel a little bit better because you can battle other things. That's not an ISP. You can battle giant <laughs> robots and blow them up. Battletech is a best way to describe it is an isometric RPG based on the Battletech franchise. So if you're a kid of the 80s, Nate. Oh, well, I am. In fact, I do. I always <laughs> lost. I hate it when I lost my leg. <laughs> you should totally know what Battletech is then. For those that don't know what Battletech is, think Mech Warrior, but yep. a little bit more nuanced. It's steeped in lore that runs back forever. So it's not Rock'em Sock'em Robots? No, definitely not. Well, <laughs> that's, well, I mean, in a manner of speaking. <laughs> Very slow and meandering Rock'em Sock'em Robots with giant laser and rockets and everything else <laughs> attached to them. This particular game is done by Hairbrain Schemes, which is the guys who did the Shadowrun games, uh, like Shadowrun Return, Shadowrun Dragonfall, and Shadowrun Hong Kong. So it's done as an RPG in that respect. It's just a really fun game. I really enjoy it. Native on Linux too, by the way. All the DLC, totally worth getting because this is a fun as heck game. If you have a MechWarrior fix that you want to get on and you don't want to have to deal with the Proton and all the other stuff from MechWarrior 5 and kind of the nonsense that is going on with that, Battletech's your best way to go. Fun game. Really cool story too. I'm all on board for it. I imagine just, just watching some of the trailers, if you're inside one of these... Are they inside the Mecha Warrior things or are they remote control? I can't remember. You're inside of them. You pilot them. You're piloting. Yeah. So if you're inside one of those and you get like just pelted with all those missiles, you can have a hard time hearing afterward. Just the noise that they probably generate, you'd probably have a hard time hearing regardless. Yeah. They have some concussions, I'm sure. I'm just thinking <laughs> from, you know, some other experiences I've had that those concussions. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, it looks like fun. 
We'd like to continue the discussion with you on Telegram and Discourse, Mumble or Discord. Visit the DLN website for more information on how to connect with the social channels and all our shows and creators at DestinationLinux.network. For more information on me, you can go to cubiclenate.com. Links to my regular written blatherings podcast and YouTube channel can be found there. You can find my random ramblings on Twitter at MattDLN. You can find me on Macedon at Wendy, DLN at Macedon.online. Be sure to check out the DLN merch store. Grab yourself some awesome DLN Extend swag along with stuff from across the network. As always, we thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with another awesome episode of DLN Extend. Until then, have a great week, everyone. Uncomfortable silence. Silence. This is where my daughter would start singing the sound of silence. <laughs> Nate, you all set with everything? I am totally upset. I mean, all set. <laughs> when someone's a total... Wendy, you might want to pause this for a second. <laughs> Nate, say that to her. Say that in a marriage. Hey, there's only one thing that I still give my husband a bad time for, and that was after our first date. He said, I'll see you around, <laughs> and I never expected to see him ever again. <laughs> 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 now we've been married almost 16 years with four kids. I think it worked out. But, um. <laughs> but, but Wendy, as a married person, you know what I'm getting at with that. Yes, yes, I do. And we'll do the wrap up. Uh, where did I put show notes? Show notes. That's right next to my BattleTech Steam link. Steam <laughs> You're welcome, Nate. Sometimes I hate you in the <laughs> nicest possible way. <laughs> I love you so much that I hate you. Love yeah. to hate me. There you go. That's a wrap.